You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 34. Innovation, it's a buzzword, that's for sure. But at the same time, it's the most important concept for businesses, large and small, to get their head around. Moore's Law tells us that technology is developing at a rate of knots, twice the speed every two years, and society is reshaping itself alongside, in parallel with that unprecedented rate of change. On a number of measures, creativity and innovation in leaders and organisations is a critical factor not only for success, but of survival too. My guest in this episode is Jaya Grant. Jaya, alongside her husband Andrew, has written two books that comprehensively delve into the topics of individual creativity and organisational innovation. In 2011, they published Who Killed Creativity? a clever look at the demise of the creative individual. And in August 2016, they are set to release The Innovation Race, a trip around the world that examines the habits and practices of different cultures and their approach to innovation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jaya Grant. Jay, it's nice to have you. I'm really looking forward to talking about your soon-to-be-released book, The Innovation Race. Fascinating and, of course, relevant topic. But one of the most interesting things about you and the work that you do is that you have written two books with your husband. Now, tell us honestly, what's it like writing a book with your husband? Well, I actually wrote several books before I wrote any books with my husband. So (laughs) it's much easier to write on your own. You can do your own thing. (laughs) But you do get a better outcome, I think, when you go through that collaborative process. It really forces you to stretch yourself and to think from a different perspective and you get challenged. And so you make sure that the material is really meeting different needs and is really appropriate for different audiences. So I think um, it's been very, certainly very difficult, but um, very rewarding. And we've actually worked together now for 30 years so we've been married for 30 years, been together you for 36 well. years. We know each other pretty well. So, uh-huh. um, you know, we just work through those challenges and um, with the intent that we're going to come up with something that, that is really superior to what we could have come up with independently. Well, it's a brave pursuit, Jay. I know a lot of people that wouldn't attempt to write a book with their spouse, no matter how aligned their professional knowledge. So you've done very well there. As I said, Your soon-to-be-released book is called The Innovation Race, and we're going to spend a fair bit of time talking about that today. But I'd really like to start by talking about your first book that you released together in 2011, Who Killed Creativity? Because there's a really nice progression between those two books. So, Jaya, give us the scoop. Who did kill creativity? Ah, well, there are many suspects. (laughs) (laughs) There's not one killer, but um, yes, in our research over all the years, we've been 
looking into creative thinking and innovation. And we work internationally, so we've literally worked with thousands and thousands of people at different levels, different types of organisations throughout the world. And we've collected evidence over the years that there are a number of different things that can impact creative thinking at the individual level and at the organisational level. So we came up, after this research, we came up with seven sort of key suspects and those that's what we address in the book. We look at things like we look at fear at the individual level, how that can stop people thinking creatively. We look at apathy at the individual level. How does that impact creative thinking? And then at the organisational level, we look at something like control, where you'll have mm. a bureaucracy that's starting to impact people's freedom to think openly. So uh, there's a few different things that we talk about in Who Killed Creativity, and it really is trying to identify what are those blocks and how do they impact our ability to think creatively and how can they be addressed? So what can you do about it? And we provide some really practical tools and skills to help people to revive their creative thinking. And you very cleverly framed that book as a whodunit kind of a thing, a, a CSI for who killed creativity. And, and I guess the interesting point at the very beginning of that concept is pronouncing it dead. How were you able to pronounce creativity as dead? What are the signs through individuals and organisations and society that led you to, to believe that creativity had in fact died? Well, I, th I think we say that it's in the process of dying <laughs> because it's, we know, you know there's certainly still a lot of creativity around. We wouldn't say it's dead, but there is evidence that it has been dying in two ways in particular. So one of those ways is um, over the years from generation to generation, while IQ scores have been rising and for a while creative quotient or CQ scores were rising at the same rate, Starting in the early 1990s, the IQ scores continued to rise and CQ scores started to decline. So there was this big shift where creative thinking was no longer rising in the same way that intelligence was. So I think this is a real concern. And this is, this is from evidence that's been collected over a period of 60 years. Mm. Research has been done. So this is quite compelling evidence. And the other thing that's happening is that we're tending to lose our creativity over our lifespan. So while a two to five-year-old, well, 98% of them will rate as geniuses on creative thinking tests, only 2% of adults do. So wow. something there's quite a dramatic drop, you know, even in those early years of a, of a child's life, it drops down to 10% quite quickly. And then by the time you're 25 years and older, it's only 2%. So I think there's compelling evidence that something is happening, you know, to our generation and over our lifespan, and we need to really address this issue. So tell us about the link between that first piece of work, Who Killed Creativity, and this second piece of work, the race, or oh, the innovation race. There's, there's an obvious and very strong link between the two. Tell us about your journey professionally between those two publications. Sure. So... As I said, the, the first book, Who Kill Creativity, is mostly looking at creative thinking from the individual perspective. So we're talking about how is an individual's creative thinking impacted and what can they do about it personally, and as well addressing some of the organisation issues around that. But what we decided to do with the second book was to go much deeper and to look at what can we do culturally in an organisation to shift 
the way an organisation functions to better support creative thinking and innovation. So we made more of a tie through from that individual level to as an organisation, what is the innovation process? What is innovation about? And how do we provide a culture that best supports creative thinking and innovation? And is it a safe way for us to think about the difference between creativity and innovation? Is creativity an individual pursuit, whereas innovation is an organisational or a society capability? I guess that's a good way to think of it in simplistic terms. So definitely what we find fascinating is that a lot of people talk about innovation. We need innovation. We must focus on innovation. Our organisation must innovate. And yet very few people seem to make the link that you can't have innovation if you don't have creative thinkers. So it needs to be happening at both levels. You have to have that sort of individual capability so that creative thinking skills and the mindset and the attitude, or you won't get the innovation at the organisation level. So, you know, there's that spark of curiosity, the imagination, the ideation process is happening at the individual level. And then that turns into novel ideas, which can then become products through the prototyping process, through, you know, development of of different products and services and so on. So there's a very clear link between the two that people don't often make. Well, let's back it up and, and take a sensible approach to this and start by really defining what innovation is. As someone who's studied it and made a career out of creativity and innovation and helping organisations with that culture. Help me understand what innovation really is. Innovation is coming up with something new and different and something that will change the way people do things, the way they think, the way they behave. So it will have an impact. And it's a very practical outcome of the creative thinking process. So you can have creative ideas, but unless they're actually implemented they won't become innovations. So innovation is that that really sort of where the rubber hits the road, that really practical outcome of the creative thinking process. And why is it so important? It's a, it's a real buzzword at the moment. We've got a prime minister at the moment who talks about the exciting times we live in, the need for innovation. Uh, we hear it, he wasn't the first to, to start talking about innovation at a large, on a large scale Innovation is a buzzword. Why, why is that the case? Why is it so important that now in 2016, we're all so conscious of innovation? Oh, it's a huge buzzword and it's been, you know, becoming that way over the years. And, and it is critical because, you know, as the pace of life gets faster and faster and as we sort of, as we proliferate in um, what we're doing, we need to be sort of ahead to be able to survive. And so that means you've got to be coming up with better ideas faster and you need to be able to implement them faster. So you need to essentially be able to innovate faster than we ever have before. So that incredible pace of change has led to more rapid innovation and the need to innovate more rapidly in order just to keep up, let alone to get ahead. So it's, it's, it's a survival thing. And, you know, as a planet, we need to be innovating faster and better in order just to survive. But it's also, in business terms, it's a competitive thing. When, you know, if you want to be able to compete in a global market, you need to be able to innovate. In parts of your book, 
you do brush up against the idea that in the Western capitalist world, we're on a, a path of continuous economic growth and therefore they're the requirement for exponential rates of innovation merely to stay afloat. It's like a clock that ticks ever faster. Yes, Professor Jeffrey West talks about that, that um, he's looked at the rates of growth and he's found that, you know, the sorts of organisations that survive, those that are really keeping ahead of that pace of growth and um, that anyone who can't is going to have a very short lifespan or any organisation that can't is going to have a very short lifespan. And there's some really interesting statistics that someone's done around the pace of walking. And they found that we're actually walking faster and faster in cities and that the cities that have the fastest walking pace are also the most innovative cities. So it's almost like it's reflecting, you know, they're the best at keeping up with that pace of change. So you've got a city like Singapore that has the fastest walking pace in the world, apparently, and um, they walk 18 metres in 10.55 seconds. Right. <laughs> and they're also ranked, as in many innovation measures, as one of the, the most innovative countries in the world. So it's an interesting sort of comparison. I did stumble across that quirky little fact. It's very interesting. It's quirky, but not all that surprising, is it? I guess not. I, it's just something you wouldn't think of someone sitting down on a street corner and checking the, the pace of walking and then matching it against statistics and discovering that it matches with innovation. It just seems an unusual way to approach things, but very, very creative, very clever. Very creative, very innovative. Now, your book is framed as a virtual race around the world, examining culture, organisations and individuals and their approach to innovation. How have some cultures and countries managed to get ahead? What do they do that the other countries don't do? Yes, well, now you've picked on a really core sort of approach that the book takes that we think is quite unique, and that is that we take our readers on a journey around the world to look at different countries and cultures. And we do that sort of historically to get a feel for how innovation and concepts about about innovation have developed over the years, and we look at the current state of innovation so we try to get almost clues in that journey on how we, what we can bring back to business, what principles there are on creating a culture that supports innovation. And what we found is really interesting is that there is no, there's no actual correct way to innovate or to create a culture that supports innovation. There's no five simple steps because there are different cultures that innovate differently. And, That's uh, a terrible shame, Jay. I was going to ask you for the five simple steps. I can sort of narrow it down to some principles <laughs> I can give you. Well, good, good. We'll um, get to those whenever we'll, you're ready. We'll get to the practical stuff. But for now, you need to realise that over the years, you know, different cultures have approached creative thinking and innovation quite differently. So, for example, you'll go to somewhere like Africa and there is no word in the African language for creativity. So they haven't focused on developing it specifically, but it is a part of the culture. So it's sort of ingrained in the culture and it's part of what they do, but Mm. but they haven't focused on developing it. Whereas you'll get a country like Poland, which has a few words for creativity, and so they might measure it in terms of everyday creative acts or or in terms of eminent creativity, you know, people who have that element of genius. So different ways that different countries think about creativity and innovation 
have impacted the ways they've developed. And one of the big things is that not every country wants to innovate and grow in the way that Western countries do. So for a lot of countries, their philosophy is more around preservation, about keeping the culture and keeping traditions. And they might be small incremental innovations, but they're not looking for the sort of fast-paced innovations, breakthrough innovations that we're looking for in the West. So that's been a really important thing for us to learn that that our approach to innovation may not be the best. It's certainly not the only one and it may not be the best. It might be a problem that we're trying to innovate too fast and we're innovating for the sake of innovating rather than thinking about, you know, what is this for? What is it about? Are we losing something in the process? What is our approach? You talked about our approach might not be the best one. How would you characterize that? Our approach is very competitive. So, you know, think of a typical show about innovation today and you think of um, Shark Tank, which is all about um, inventors coming and presenting their products, their inventions to a panel. And the whole theme is very competitive. So it's aggressive. You know, there's sharks in a tank and literally the contestants walk down this long hallway and there's, you know, a lot of finger biting, nail biting going on. And um, they present to the panel and then there's, they're challenged by the panel. And it, it sort of reflects, I think, our competitive approach to innovation. And that is, we just have to keep proliferating and produce more and more, you know, faster and faster. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's meeting a need anymore necessarily. That's what innovation used to be about. How, how can you meet needs, address needs? But it's more about sort of creating for desires and our desires grow and grow and, and therefore, you know, the pace of innovation increases faster and faster. And so I think this is interesting because competition, it's a neutral concept. There's nothing wrong with competition. But it's especially helpful if we're competing against ourselves and improving ourselves. But it can be destructive if we're competing against others at the expense of others. So you think about the root of the word competition comes from Latin, which is competere. And com actually means to to strive together, to seek something in harmony with other people, while pater means a common interest. So I don't think that's what competition is today in in innovation. I think it's, you know, you've got to get your product out faster and beat the other person or beat the other company. So I think that's an interesting reflection on where we've gone with innovation. There's very little that could be more vicious than that imagery of the shark tank, you rightly point out. And they do portray it as a very competitive world. But is there room to think about innovation in a number of different categories? I think it's tempting for for innovation to be thought of mainly as, as you say, that competitive business creating of new products and services that aren't necessarily meeting consumer needs, but are just different or fancier or use more technology than what our competitors are doing right now. But there's also another very strong element of that higher order, almost virtuous innovation that's taking place in the world. And that is solving real problems around the world, like climate change or world poverty or or even one that that is very highly ranked amongst the world's top innovators that is coming up with autopiloted cars to try and do something about death tolls on the roads. 
Yes. I mean, the irony is that a lot of the problems we're trying to solve, humanity has created. <laughs> so yeah. we're, we're trying to solve things that are our fault. But having said that, it has so much potential and so much um, we have so much ability to work together to solve these issues and uh, learn in the process. And, uh, you know, one of the good things now is that as technology becomes more accessible, the innovation opportunities become more accessible. So there are more people at more levels who are able to contribute to that process. And so it's not just the people at the top looking at this. There's people at, at all different levels from the grassroots levels up. And that's where you get the benefits of a shared economy now. You get the sort of innovation that's coming from more sustainable. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. Jay, I looked up the world's top 10 innovating companies and I found the type of work they were doing really interesting. Four of the top 10 were innovating around, as I mentioned before, the autopiloted cars, Beidou, Tesla, Mobileye and Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. Four of the top 10 all trying to work out a way that we can get in a car and not have to drive it ourselves, with the benevolent goal, of course, to reduce or completely eliminate death tolls on the road. Now, again, of that top 10, two were dealing specifically with medical concerns, sequencing DNA, is the work of 23andMe, a Silicon Valley startup. And another company, Sparks Therapeutics, are offering or researching ways to offer life-altering treatments for debilitating genetic diseases. One of these top 10 is Aquino. They're coming up with non-toxic batteries that specialize in long-term storage of solar and wind power. And just two out of the top 10 were Amazon and Huawei, which are lifestyle companies, just making our technology more usable and, and fun or convenient to use. So of that top 10, eight of them are real benevolent, world-changing, trying to make the world a better place for everyone type innovations. Yes, that's great to hear because um, we've always believed that you can solve and should solve the world's problems through innovation and that the organisations that focus on that will actually do well. So I think there's been a misconception in the past that as an organisation, you either have to focus on purpose or profit. And what we're saying is that you can focus on purpose and have a purpose, and we call it purpose-driven innovation, and you can also make a profit. So it's, you don't have to have one or the other. And we've got some statistics around that. Companies that focus on purpose and sustainability can outperform others by up to 70%. So innovative companies do really well, that's for sure. But you add to that social responsibility and environmental sustainability, and that even increases your, your chances of doing well. And yeah, you think about how an organization that has a purpose is going to have much greater employee engagement because you've got mm. people are feeling they're part of something exciting and worthwhile. You're going to have a, a greater sort of customer interest in engagement because they're going to catch that vision as well. There'll be you know more of a, a shared vision, and that sort of feeds through to having uh, being a more sort of 
having more integrity as a company, being a more ethical company, and therefore gaining more respect as a company. And that translates um, to profits. On the other side of the coin, I also stumbled across some stories that were clearly innovation for the sake of innovation. There's a, a baby bottle that's all teched up and gives you the ability to record through your iPhone the nutrients that are going into your baby. But at the same time, no one who was working on that project thought to create a baby bottle where the lid screwed on properly. So this baby (laughs) bottle leaked everywhere. And the other thing was that the teat flowed too quickly. So any baby trying to use this particular product was prone to choking to death on the milk. So that was another really glaring example of, of this race to innovation for the sake of innovating. That's crazy. Yes, not thinking through the consequences and not thinking through, yeah, what you're doing carefully. And there's a product that was produced, um, Purple Pepsi. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Is that something we need? You know, do we need every color of every type of food? (laughs) Now, and and is that even really innovation? We tend to take hold of these words in society and squeeze them of all their meaning by overuse. Have we done that to a certain extent with the word innovation? Quite possibly. I mean, innovation is quite broad because, as I said earlier, you can have small incremental innovations, as many cultures do, and you can have sort of the more rapid breakthrough innovations that appear to sort of come out very fast, even though there's typically a long development process leading up to that. So, you know, there are different ways that you can innovate, but I think the word is thrown around a lot. That's something that's it's a little bit new or a little bit different. It's not necessarily that much of a great innovation. Like my baby bottle. Now, you talk about the innovation race, but you do so in a way that's very conscious of perhaps the flaws in framing it as a race at all. You talk about, you know, should it even be a race? And if it is a race, it's a, who is it against? Is it against each other or is it against higher order challenges? If it is a race, who's in charge? Who gets to set the rules and where's the clear finish? So, Why did you start by calling your book The Innovation Race and then build into it this questioning around whether it is even a race at all? We wanted to pick up on a common terminology, and that's a common phrase that's used that innovation is a race, the innovation race. And so we wanted to sort of confront it to say, okay, this, yes, innovation has become a race, and particularly in technological terms, Western countries are trying to innovate faster and faster. But then we challenge that and we say, well, if it's a race, who's winning? <laughs> who's, you know, who's being impacted by this? What does yeah. it mean? And uh, so we're really digging deep to say, what are the principles behind innovation? What's the purpose behind it? And how can you actually make sure that innovation is sustainable over the long term and for everybody? Is it a case where it could be a race, but if it is, it all of humanity is on the same team and we're racing against time? Yeah, so we've, we've talked to you know, a range of people from philosophers through to tribal leaders to CEOs and we've got this feeling that people yeah, find that the concept of a race can be quite confronting because mm. it's all about, as I said before, trying to compete against each other and trying to go faster and faster. You think of the concept of the rat race or the nuclear race where we're proliferating nuclear weapons, and none of these are really healthy. 
And so if you think of I and mean, somebody said to us, how about you think of it in terms of a, a, a marathon relay where we're passing the baton to each other and we've all got to keep going. We've all, as a team, we need to get to the end together. So if you think about that, we can be racing against environmental challenges or against the problems of mm. poverty. And we're working together to solve those problems. And we think that's a lot more healthy in the long term. So, of course, for individuals and organisations, we want this to be a, a practical conversation where we get to the nub of, of what we can do differently. I'd like to approach that question by, by starting off talking about the blockers and enablers that exist individually and within organisation. You, you talk about those as psychological blockers and enablers, and, and you also mentioned some paradoxical challenges that exist within organisations. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So... In the, in the first book we wrote on this area, Who Killed Creativity, we talk about the psychological level. So individually, what are the, the individual blocks and enablers? And in this book, we're focusing more on the environmental, cultural blocks and enablers. And what we've found is that, as I said earlier, there's no five simple steps to becoming more innovative and to creating a more innovative culture. But what there are is this, we've identified some principles that you need to address in order to create a more innovative culture. And the research has shown that typically there can be two approaches to innovation, that either there can be an exploitation approach, which is saying, let's exploit what we have, let's stick with what we have and just try and come up with some small incremental innovations. Yes, squeeze it further. And so that's much more of a preservation type approach. And then you'll have another approach, which is exploration. And that is more about let's explore all the different opportunities and come up with something completely different and new, which is leading more to the breakthrough innovations. And we looked at that culturally and we said, well, what sort of culture is going to be exploiting what they have? And we focus on this idea of preservation, the sort of culture that's trying to preserve versus the sort of culture that's trying to explore. And so through the book, um, we found, and through our research, we found that there are four key principles that contribute to that process. And each of them is a paradox. So on the one hand, we've looked at research over the years that says you need freedom is an important principle for innovation. But we're taking that further and we're saying it's not just freedom. You also need the opposite of that. You need some control. You need some discipline. (laughs) And so we're saying that the important thing for leaders to do is to navigate between those two extremes and to find the best balance where they can. So yes, you need freedom, but too much freedom leads to chaos. And um, in innovation, that means that you're going to have lots of great ideas and lots of brainstorming, but they're not necessarily going to get grounded. So you need some sort of organisation some sort of systems and structures in place that are going to help those ideas to convert into practical outcomes. So uh, that's one of the principles, control versus freedom. Another one is stability versus flexibility. So yes, they've always said that creative thinking is about flexibility, being able to adapt, come up with different new ideas. That's the exploration side. But you also need stability because unless you've got a stable foundation, then you can't sort of go out with that confidence to explore different ideas. So the other two I can can go through quickly with you as well. Um, Please. So 
the third one is focus versus openness. So you need some focus, which is the exploitation side. You need some specialization and people just to sort of be able to drill down to really concentrate on a particular area. You also need the openness, which is typically associated with innovation and creative thinking. So the openness where you're open to diversity, you're open to connections with different people, with different organisations from different backgrounds, and that's sort of exposing you to new ideas that you might not otherwise have exposure to. So it's, once again, it's, you know, it's not one or the other. It's really how do you navigate between those two and come up with the best balance. And the final one is individualism versus group engagement. So while creative thinking is critical at the individual level and typically ideas will come from individuals initially, then you need to be able to transition that to a group process where everybody's building on ideas and they're challenging each other and they're helping to ground those ideas, test and and check that those ideas have a practical outcome. So there's that level of group engagement that's required as well as the individual thinking and individual passion. The last of your four there, they all caught my attention, but I'll start talking about the last of the four. I've just recorded an episode on millennials and, and of course, the way we framed it is that you can't have a decent conversation about millennials without also talking about the two generations with whom they share the workplace, which is the baby boomers and people like me, Gen Xs. It's really heartening to know that millennials are great team workers. That's what they do really well. They crowdsource knowledge and information and the thought process. They love working in a teams. And, and the guest that I had, Lee Carraher, she talked about the, the worst thing you could ever say to a millennial is that you've let the team down. So it heartens me because you just talked about the group engagement as a really important part of the process to coming up with innovative ideas and putting them into practice and putting them out into the marketplace if that's where you're heading. The millennials will do a really great job of that. People like me, the Gen Xs, we're the latchkey kids. We're that first generation of kids who had two parents who worked. What we have taken into the workplace is this rugged individualism, the ability and desire to work by ourselves, And that doesn't complete the process there, does it? We might come up with some wonderful ideas, but without group engagement, we're not going to get those ideas into market. Exactly. And it's again, it's a situation where there's no right or wrong between those two. It's not one or the other. It's both. You need those individual ideas. You need that individual creative thinking, but you must also have that group context in order to really push those ideas through to innovations. That's going to be very, very important. And you think of, um, I, I think typically we, we have tended to think of innovation and creative thinking as an individual activity. And we think of individual creative geniuses. So, for example, you think of Steve Jobs, who, you know, undoubtedly was a creative genius, but did he actually involve his team and engage his team adequately in the process? And, you know, is he able to pass on that individual creative thinking to the organisation as a whole and create a culture that supports it. And I guess we'll find that out over the longer term as we see where Apple goes from here. But sometimes that rugged individualism and cowboy approach can be counterproductive over the long term. Mm. 
Yeah. As I say, heartening that that increasingly this task of innovating and, and keeping up with the world will fall squarely on the shoulders of the millennials because that is something that they do well. Now, the other three, the first three that you talked about, freedom and control, these paradoxes, uh, stability against flexibility and focus with openness. As you talk through those, it got me thinking about a very rude division between the types of organizations that we might work in, either the the very large traditional older organizations up against the new generation of entrepreneurial startups. It seems to me as though there's a divide between the two. And and when you look through information and, and ideas and articles on innovation, you you do see that dichotomy kind of emerging between the way innovation is approached by entrepreneurial startups and large traditional organizations. Yes. And I think there's been a metaphor that's stuck with me for a long time about, you know, there's the large ships out there that once you put them on course, they're stuck on course and it's going to take a lot to be able to shift them and move them in case of a crisis or emergency. Whereas um, on the other hand, you've got the small startups that are, are like the small yachts that are able to shift and tack quickly oh, in response. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even more quicker. Yeah. More responsive. So there's pros and cons with both. You know, the, the large organisations have the stability, they have the history, they have the background, they have the experience, but they don't necessarily have that type of freedom and flexibility that you really need to be able to adapt to change and respond to it quickly. Whereas the small organisations have that flexibility, but I've been working with some startups recently that measure very highly on flexibility, but they've got very stressed staff because they don't know where they're going and what they're doing and what's going to happen mm. tomorrow. And it's, it can be you know, quite difficult and challenging as an organisation to not be clear about where you are and where you're headed next. So there's, pro, you know, as I said, pros and cons. And John Cotter actually has uh, some good ideas about this in his book, Accelerate. He talks about the need to hang on to those strong, firm foundations, but it's almost like you need these sort of leads or cords coming out from that foundation that uh, are much more flexible and able to respond. So it's, it's like a dual leadership system, he calls it. So quite obviously, those larger traditional organisations could learn some flexibility and agility from entrepreneurs and startups, whereas entrepreneurs and startups could learn some stability from those other organisations, the, the nice balance that you described between those two paradoxes. Exactly. And this is what we're saying, that this is a dynamic process. It's ongoing. You can't just follow your five steps and there you've made it and you're going to be innovative. It's, you know, that's, sorry, the bad news. It's hard work. You have to keep adjusting and you have to keep working. Where where are we as individuals now and where are we as an organisation now? It's, it's like there's a pathway with these two sides to the road and which side of the road are we sitting on at the moment and what do we need to do? You know, it might be appropriate to have a period where there's more freedom because you're a startup and you need to explore the opportunities, but there's going to come a time where you'll need to come back towards the middle of the road and incorporate some more control in your organisation to ensure that you've got that stability as well over the long term. So it's a, you contend and, and, and the pathway's not straight either. There's going to be curved, <laughs> curves in the path that constantly arise and you have to, so you have to keep adjusting and readjusting. Where are we now? Where do we need to move to? How are we going to get there? And we have a whole um, workshop process where we help and we have an assessment where we help individuals and organisations identify where they're at on that scale 
and where they need to be and what they can do to shift according to particular situations. So you've heard of situational leadership and this is like situational innovation that you need to adapt your culture according to what phase of innovation you're at and where you need to be next. That's great. I love that little analogy with situational leadership. That's very good, Jay. Very practical and and easy to use. Now, I'm I'm really tempted to talk about typical podcast questions like what's the one big thing or what could leaders do? I'm trying to, I mean, the the themes that you've given there and, and describing those paradoxical challenges is really helpful. If we're looking to take it one step further towards practicality, as a leader in, in a traditional organization or as someone who's running a startup and sees themselves as an entrepreneur, what can they put at the forefront of their mind to ensure that they're getting this balance right? What's the one change they could make that will ensure that they're constantly testing the environment and paying attention to what's going on around them in the atmosphere they're creating? I think firstly, they need an awareness. So you've got to constantly be thinking about where am I now? What's my position? And once you've got that awareness, then you can more easily work out what to do next. Where do I need to be next? So then you can shift And a big thing for us is that that needs to be a conscious decision. So, so many people in organisations end up sort of shifting to one side of the road or the other or drifting over (laughs) without realising it. And they're not aware of... Falling asleep at the wheel. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, great analogies and metaphors you can use here. You can easily skid off the side of the road if you're going too fast around that corner (laughs) and taking too many risks. And so... Just being conscious of what's happening and being a conscious leader will make a huge decision because then you can communicate where you can make, you know, talk to yourself first of all and, and really think through what you're doing and why you're doing it. And you can communicate with other people in your organisation and share the fact, well, this is where we are now and there might be reasons for that, but we need to now be conscious about what action we're going to take next. You talked about skidding off the road by trying to turn the corner too quickly. You could also not turn the corner at all if you're moving too slowly and and not take that turn that your organisation needs. So we keep on coming back to those ideas of the paradoxes, which I'm I'm sure is why you landed on in the, in the book in the first place, because it's so important, as you say, to get the balance right between those two dichotomies at, in each of the four paradoxes. They're very good and very, very instructional to us. Jaya, what about Australia? Australia in 2015 ranked 17 on the Global Innovation Index. How's that shape up? After your travels around the world examining cultures and peoples and organisation in relation to their innovative practices, how does Australia shape up? There's a number of different measures and uh, they're looking at innovation in different ways. And most of them focus on technology and technological inventions. And most of them look at patents. So how many patents have been produced, which is a limited measure of innovation. It's what's typically used, but it is limited. So on measures like that, you'll typically have, and you can have a look at a map of the world and you'll see there are sort of hotspots where innovation is really thriving, such as Silicon Valley. That might be no surprise. (laughs) But Korea, Japan, there are places around the world. And Australia is not necessarily one of those hotspots at the moment technologically. But here's what's interesting. Richard Florida, who wrote um, the book The Creative Class, 
has his own measure of innovation and he includes these cultural factors. So things such as freedom, how much freedom is there to support the innovative process? And Australia has come out on top of that measure. (laughs) So (laughs) here's our challenge. We actually have the capability to be highly innovative and we have a culture that supports innovation as a country. So it's up to us and I guess we can decide we don't need to. And I know that the current drive by the government is really focused on science and technology and I understand the importance of that. But I think it's a little bit of a shame, it's a bit limited that we're not looking also at services and and other ways we can innovate to improve lives and improve the world. But we have that capability, so it'd be interesting to see what we do with it now that there is a focus on innovation. Well, you guessed at my next question. Of course, I was going to ask you about Malcolm Turnbull's announcement. He is our Prime Minister again. I think we can establish that pretty clearly after some days of uncertainty. In December last year, in 2015, he launched the National Innovation and Science Agenda, $1.1 billion. Now, depending on which news sites you dive into, that's either a fantastic initiative because it puts innovation at the forefront of the mind of business, or it's a terrible oversight and the work of someone who just doesn't get it, because what it does is offer tax cuts to predominantly large organisations to get them to take uh, risks that are not measured. So there's a whole spectrum of how that has been received. From your point of view, as someone who thinks and talks about innovation all of the time, How well is the Australian government or the Australian business community doing at setting itself up to be successful in this field? I think you have to start somewhere. So I really Mm. appreciate that the government is seeing it as a priority and realises that um, innovation is really a key to survival in the future. And uh, I appreciate that they're looking for ways to stimulate that process I appreciate that they're looking at, you know, what's happening in research, which is where a lot of innovation is taking place in universities where academics are looking at different ways of doing things and they're putting the the scientific rigour into discovering what has been done, what needs to be done, how it can be done. And they're trying now, the government's trying to link that better with business so that businesses are following through on well-researched concepts So I really appreciate that it has become a focus and it's been brought to the forefront. But as I said earlier, I think it's a bit of a shame that the focus is on science and technology, which is huge, but let's even open it up more than that and let's look at all sectors of society and ways that we can innovate to benefit all. What sort of intervention would you like to see from the government or or is it not a government intervention that's needed at all? What, What would drive a greater innovation culture across Australia generally? I think we actually need workshops on um, how to create a culture that supports innovation and I'm pushing my own (laughs) (laughs) You need to come and see you and your husband and get a workshop. Exactly. (laughs) Because otherwise you could end up innovating for the sake of innovating and we could have all these great technologies but we, we haven't really built a firm foundation for the process. So we need like to like milk s- bottles that drown children. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so you really need to just stop, take a few breaths, think about the purpose behind the innovation and think about what you're going to do to create a culture that supports innovation, a sustainable innovation over the long term. And then I think you'll come up with better innovations and innovations will thrive. 
we are a society that loves to progress. As, as I did a little bit of research for our conversation today, I just was thinking a little bit outside of what we would talk about. And I, I was thinking about everything around us is, is so far progressed from a generation ago or, or so. For example, a glaring example is that the, the mobile phone I have sitting next to me has more computer power than NASA when they put two men on the moon. That's amazing to me. You know, and, and more specifically, the Apollo guidance computer. Get this, if you, if you know your computer or you know your phone, the Apollo guidance computer had 64 kilobits of memory and it operated at 0.42 megahertz of processing speed. Compare that to my MacBook Pro that has 16 gigabytes of memory and 2.5 gigahertz of processing speed. My computer sitting in front of me right now is exponentially more powerful than the one that put two men on the moon. So we are progressing. The other one, and I know you'll be interested in this, Jaya, because you're an ocean swimmer. I read that in your profile somewhere. I did a little bit of looking into into the the local schoolboy swimming competition from last year, or maybe it was earlier this year. If you were to win the 100-meter freestyle at the school competition, the GPS school competition in Brisbane this year, you would have had to swim a time that would have won you the gold medal in every Olympics up to 1980. The boy that won the 100 freestyle at the Brisbane Jeeps either this year or last year, he swam a time faster than Mark Spitz, the American swimming legend, ever swam. He swam a time that would have been the world record up until 1976. Isn't that amazing progress? We expect that of society, don't we? That's absolutely incredible. That just shows everything's getting faster and faster, literally. <laughs> and uh, yes, it shows that we, we can keep progressing and we can keep extending ourselves and extending society. Interesting. Well, I think what it says is that we must. If you don't, you will absolutely fall behind. The idea that if Mark Spitz was a schoolboy today, at his peak, he wouldn't win the local competition amazes me. The idea that my MacBook Pro is so far advanced to the computer that put man on the moon amazes me. We must keep up. Innovate or perish is probably the message. Yes, definitely. So your book comes out very soon, Jaya. Tell everyone where can they find you, where can they find the book, and what can they expect out of the book that we haven't covered today? Okay, well, the book is due out August 1st and um, it will be available in all good bookstores. And on of course it will. The e-book will also be available online or you can write to us at tyrian.com or at the-innovation-race.com. And on that website, there's a whole lot of information about all the support workshops and assessments and keynote talks and other material that we've built up around these concepts to support what we talk about in the book. So there's a lot more information. There's interviews on there, there's videos, there's um, articles, all sorts of things that you can read, which will help you to understand these concepts better. And then in the book itself, it's, it's quite comprehensive and quite dense. There's a lot of information in there. And we've divided it into, you know, talking philosophically about principles from different countries and travel stories. And then that's balanced out with application sections, which are looking at specific case studies from organisations today. And then we have checklists of, you know, what can you do to improve in each of these areas and to navigate these paradoxes successfully. 
So we've tried to make sure that it's a balance of really interesting new reading, lots of facts, lots of stories, lots of statistics and practical help for, okay, what can we do differently? How can we act on this information? So hopefully people will find it a um, fascinating read. I'm sure they will. Your first book was very successful. And as I say, it was framed so cleverly in that whodunit kind of a way. And I'm sure this new book that comes out in August will be just as successful. I've read the overview, I think quite a comprehensive overview actually. And and it's fascinating. I love the way that it's shaped around that tour around the world and the investigation into different cultures and the way they, they go about innovation and creativity. It's very clever, Jaya. Now, look, you're not off the hook yet. I've got three very quick questions before I can let you go. I want you to think about your career, everything you've achieved, the books you've written, all of the work that you've put together, and tell me what's the one thing that you're most proud of? I actually feel like this book is a culmination of of a lot of things that I've developed over the years, and I've worked in not-for-profit sector and education and different health projects and so on in developing countries. I've worked in corporate top offices of top multinationals around the world. And I feel this brings both of these together, that we're looking at, you know, the principles, we're looking at cultural elements that are important, and we're bringing it together into the concept of purpose-driven innovation, I feel like is sort of a pinnacle of what we've done over the last 20 to 30 years. So I'm very excited about it. (laughs) So this book is your greatest achievement? Well, I think the principles that have come from the book and, yeah, the combination of how do you bring purpose back into what you do and make sure that it's still sustainable. All right, fantastic. Now, my penultimate question, what's one thing that you know that you wish everyone else knew? Oh, that's a hard one. (laughs) Just how important values are. If you don't have a base of values, you don't know where you'll end up. You need some guiding principles to take you through life and that will help you to get to where you need to go and not just drift along with the tides. Good answer, Jay. I like that. I like to think of values as kind of like a filter through which you can put every decision that you make. If you have a firm set of values, every tough question becomes pretty easy if you run it through your values filter. I like that answer. Mm, That's a nice way of putting it too. Last question, then you're allowed to go, Jay. Thinking about personal or professional development, what's one thing that you're working on right now? I'm actually um, doing postgraduate research right now, so I'm really challenging myself to think both critically and creatively at the same time. And um, so it's, there's the scientific element of the research, making sure that it's very rigorous, but also the creative side of my brain is being exercised and challenged. And so I love that combination where you can tend to sort of just use one side of the brain or the other, but I love the fact that I'm being forced to bring it all together into one outcome. Really enjoying it. Very nice. Jaya Grant, The Innovation Race, thank you so much for talking to the Team Guru podcast. Thank you so much, David. It's been wonderful. And that was Jaya Grant, You'll have noticed that I was shamelessly looking for the easy answer. I wanted five steps that we could all take to be innovative geniuses. Sadly, of course, they don't exist. 
but Jaya graciously guided me away from my simple desires and presented, instead, a sophisticated set of principles that can help guide individuals and organisations from entrepreneurial startups to mature multinationals. They came in the form of four paradoxical challenges. The search for a balance between freedom and control, stability and flexibility, focus and openness, and individual versus group engagement. The challenge sits at the feet of everyone, individuals and organisations big and small. The ability to purposely innovate new ideas that are founded on values. I will, as always, share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jaya. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. While you're there, check out the 30 or so previous episodes of the podcast. I know there'll be a topic or two there that tickles your fancy. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Stitcher. And you can find me on LinkedIn or email david at teams.guru. I'll be back next week for another episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.